I consider climate change to be the biggest of all public health threats. Um, if we don't respond to climate change well and soon, um, we will have unleashed a public health catastrophe that will last many, many generations. So the fact that our health funding agencies are putting tiny amounts of money towards doing research on climate and health, the ways in which climate is harming our health, and more importantly, the ways in which we can protect our health. Um, I think that's a, a real serious um, imbalance in, in, the, uh, uh, in our, funding, our health funding priorities in the United States and, and almost certainly around the world. You're listening to the voice of Dr. Ed Maybach, who is a George Mason University Distinguished University Professor and the Director of the Mason Center for Climate Change Communication. His work has focused on developing and applying social science insights to help society make informed decisions that would stabilize Earth's life-sustaining climate and prevent further harm from climate change. He earned his doctorate degree in communication science at Stanford University in California, his master's in public health degree at San Diego State University in California, and his bachelor's degree of art in psychology at the University of California, San Diego. In this episode, you'll learn the different causes of climate change and how climate extremes such as too hot or too cold can impact your health and what you can do about it. We'll also dive into the policy-making process in addressing climate change and how you can be a part of this new change in creating a better environmental-friendly place for yourself, your family, and your loved one for many generations. Stay tuned and listen on. Hello, friends. This is the What is Public Health podcast with your host, Dr. Ki Chan. What is public health? To me, public health is the invisible force that keeps you healthy every day, and I bet you didn't even know it. This podcast is your source of the latest trend in public health. Hello, Dr. Maybach. Thank you so much for joining us here today. There's been a lot of talk about climate change and even misconceptions about climate change and its impact on health. Today, we are very happy to have you here today to help demystify the truth and the myths of climate change on health and why we as a general public should really care about climate change. So first, maybe you can tell us about what causes climate change. A key. Um, actually, I'd like to, to start out with another comment, which is to compliment you on the name of your podcast, What is Public Health? That is such a terrific name. Um, and it's so important that we all understand what public health is, because in fact, it's, uh, it really gets to the basis of, of how, what we can do to make sure that everybody in our society lives a, a long, healthy life. Um, and so I, I'm really, really so happy to be with you in this conversation. Um, and to ask, answer your question, uh, what causes climate change? Well, a lot of things cause climate change, but primarily three. Um, mostly, it's burning of fossil fuels. The fact that we, we burn fossil fuels to produce electricity, to heat and cool our homes, um, to fuel our, our cars and airplanes and buses and boats. Uh, and those fossil fuels are emitting, uh, are producing carbon dioxide when we burn them. And uh, the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere um, helps to trap uh, the sun's rays, essentially. It creates a warm a blanket uh, around the... Our, it thickens the, the atmosphere as if it was a, a thickening blanket of, of, um, that keeps the sun's rays back down on Earth 
rather than reflecting back out after they've bounced off the surface of the earth. So burning fossil fuels is the first one. Um, burning down the forests is the second one. Uh, primarily the, um, uh, the, the tropical forests, but more and more we're seeing large forests around the world burning because the, the world is warming and our forests are getting dry and, and uh, becoming more like, uh, you know, more prone to large fires. So that is the second largest cause. And then really the third cause that's probably worth talking about is the food we eat and, and how we grow that food. Um, eating foods that are sort of low on the, on the food pyramid, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables, grains, um, those are foods that are fairly, uh, the, um, that don't produce a lot, don't require a lot of energy to produce and don't require a lot of uh, fossil fuel uh, to, to in the production. Um, whereas foods higher on the food chain, like beef, for example, um, dairy, are much more fossil fuel intensive. And uh, so one, one way that one thing that we can do in order to, to produce less of the uh, heat trapping pollution from climate change is to eat lower on the food chain. Maybe you could tell us more about what are some major health impacts of climate extreme, because I think if people understand at these extremes, like if it's too cold or too hot and how that can impact on their own individual health, that might motivate our general public to really consider what they're doing on a day-to-day basis on climate change. Yeah, and it's, you know, most people, when they think about climate change, um, they tend to think about, frankly, not people. <laughs> they think about plants, penguins, polar bears, particularly polar bears, um, and they don't think about us. And the, the fact that, in fact, in reality, uh, the thing that we hold most dear that climate change is harming is our health, the health of our children, the health of our parents. Um, and there are sort of seven major ways in which uh, climate change is harming our health. Um, it's going to take a moment, but I'll, I'll try to breeze through them pretty quickly. Uh, so the first of those seven ways is um, warmer conditions uh, tend to create more air pollution. So, you know, we, we often call that smog, but uh, we, we get worse smog condition. We create more smog when the, when the temperatures are warmer. And air pollution is just a really insidious environmental um, toxin in the sense that it's pretty well understood that air pollution harms our lungs. Most people don't know that air pollution can also cause or exacerbate heart disease. And, and perhaps most seriously, air pollution can actually harm our brains um, all the way um, from the time before we're born, when we are in utero, um, uh, uh, PM 2.5, the tiny little particles that are one of the basic components of air pollution, can actually pass through the mother's placenta and into the, uh, into the embryonic child. Um, and, and, and the consequences of that exposure can be really quite devastating in the sense that it can last a lifetime. So a child who's whose nervous system is harmed when she's in utero, that's going to be a burden she bears with her for a lifetime. The, the second major impact is, is um, pretty well understood, but it's not really thought of as a health impact. And that is climate change is making our weather more dangerous, our storms more violent. Um, and so when we get heavy winds, heavy rains, uh, we get major floods, people tend to get hurt and or killed during storms like that. And so that's very much a direct way in which our changing climate is harming our health. And then a, a, a sort of a secondary consequence of that 
is when we get a lot of rain, intense rainstorms, um, it tends to wash all kinds of contaminants into our water supplies and even into our, the, the fields where we grow our foods. Um, so a secondary consequence of, of heavy rainstorms is more foodborne disease and more waterborne disease. Got a lot of yuck factor in that in the sense that, you know, essentially it's washing uh, both human and animal feces uh, into, uh, into contact with human water and, and food supplies. Um, a fourth component is a fourth way that in which climate harms our health is that it's um, by, by interrupting ecosystems, it creates opportunities for um, insects and rodents, um, what we in public health we call vectors, creates opportunities for, for vector-borne diseases to spread to places that they hadn't previously existed. So we see a lot of mosquito-borne diseases in places that we hadn't previously seen, and um, as well as tick-borne disease. Lyme, Lyme disease, I live on the East Coast, so Lyme disease has become absolutely endemic up and down the East Coast um, as a result of the, the changing conditions from climate change. And then there are a couple of, uh, I'm going to give you two that most people would never think of, but I think they're really quite serious. Um, one is hunger and malnutrition. So those dangerous storms I talked about a moment ago, one of the consequences of dangerous violent storms is it, it kills our livestock. It kills our crops. It damages our crops. Um, and in the U.S., where we typically have a, most people have enough to eat, most but not all of us have enough to eat, that's not such a problem. But in, in food insecure countries or in countries where food insecurity is the norm, it's a huge problem. So if more violent storms are destroying more of the food that we need for people to you know, adequately nourish themselves, that's a very serious health consequence from climate change. And, and then uh, another very serious but largely invisible consequence is, is the mental health harms. So again, coming back to those dangerous storms, violent storms, when, when people are flooded out of their home or a hurricane destroys their community, um, that's a really traumatic event. That's about as traumatic as it gets. And, um, and that can cause PTSD. Many people who, in fact, survive these traumatic events do develop PTSD. And many of us who are aware of the, the sort of the, the health consequences of climate change and, uh, you know, the really serious threats that climate change brings into our lives, many of us feel more anxious and some of us feel depressed as a result of, of that knowledge. So mental health harms is, is another really serious consequence. And then finally is actually the most obvious consequence, but I say the most obvious for last, and that is heat waves. Heat waves are really dangerous. People die during heat waves, particularly young children and our elderly. Um, but they're not the only ones. People who have chronic diseases are more likely to be harmed by heat waves. Um, student athletes, uh, military recruits, um, and lots and lots of people die. In fact, heat waves are um, the most common cause of death as a result of weather. So those are the seven ways in which climate change is harming our health. Thank you so much for sharing those seven ways. And I think our listeners are now maybe more perked up to know that all these ex environmental exposure can impact from prenatally to their kids and themselves and also the animals around them. And I think another question I think now people are 
thinking about more as we're talking about climate extremes is what are some potential impact of climate change on the pandemic? And specifically, any thoughts on the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, Key, I actually think the, the better question and the question I'm going to answer, <laughs> because I, I feel it's the, the question I'm better prepared to answer, is just the reverse. It's, it's what is the impact of climate change um, on, uh, oh, what is the impact of the pandemic on climate change? Mm-hmm. As opposed to what is the impact of climate change on the pandemic? Um, yeah. Because we don't, really, we don't really have an answer yet to that question. What is the impact of climate change on the pandemic? But we, I think we're starting to see an answer of uh, what is the impact of the pandemic on climate change? And, and strangely enough, it's kind of a hopeful answer. Um, and I, I believe in the value of sharing hopeful information whenever possible about climate change because climate change can be such a depressing topic. But, you know, my view of, of what we're learning from the pandemic is it, it's shown us that we can change our ways really quickly and really dramatically if we want to, if we have reasons to. Um, so, for example, I haven't been in an airplane once since the pandemic struck, and I don't plan to be in an airplane again for, for quite a while. Um, and that's actually helping me accomplish something that was sort of on my goal list anyway. I, I understand that um, flying around the country and around the world is very uh, fossil fuel intensive, and it's it just fundamentally at odds with the work that I do and my, with my understanding that the Climate change is the most potent threat to human health and well-being there is. Um, and yet, even yet before the pandemic, although I had cut back my air travel quite a bit, I hadn't eliminated it. And now I've, I've, at least for the past five, six months, I've eliminated it completely. And you want to know what? I actually feel better for it. I spend less time in travel. Um, I spend less cost. I have more of my my research budget intact because I'm not flying here and there. Um, and moreover, there's just a lot of less wear and tear on my body. And I think a lot of other people are learning the benefits of reducing their travel as well. So I think that's a real lesson from the pandemic that might have benefits in helping us address climate change. Um, but then there's another thing that's happening, at least I hope it's happening, uh, in response to the pandemic that may help us with climate change as well. And that is, I think, Americans and people around the world are listening, are, are learning how important it is to listen to the experts. In the case of the pandemic, we're learning how important it is to listen to public health experts because they're the ones, and infectious disease epidemiologists like yourself, because you and they are the ones who understand the nature of what's happening best. And you are the ones who understand what are options to protect ourselves and protect our loved ones the best? And so I, I hope this is an, a lesson that we're all taking out of the, pen, uh, the pandemic is listen to experts. And if, if that's true, if we are learning, if we're remembering an important lesson that we all once knew, but maybe we forgot the importance of listening to expertise, maybe we'll start listening to climate experts too. Um, and listening to what they're trying to teach us about what a serious threat this is to to human civilization, to all of us, um, especially to the most vulnerable in our societies, our, our children, our elderly, um, and and people of color, and 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 especially members, low income members of our communities who who just have the fewest resources to actually become more resilient, protect themselves from our, our changing global climate. 
So that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that the pandemic teaches us this important lesson and we put it to good use in fighting the uh, in, in fighting the climate crisis as well. But, you know, there are still some challenges and for scientists to conduct studies, um, whether it's for funding or whether it's just the duration of the study. So what are some major challenges for scientists like yourself studying climate change and health linkage? It's, it's actually the, the studying um, climate change as a human health threat is actually a re- relatively new field of study. I mean, some the earliest pioneers in this field have maybe been at it for 30 years, but there really were just a small handful of them around the world for a long time. And, and I would say it's really only in the past 10 years that this has become a, um, a significant area of study. And, and the, the biggest challenge is, frankly, money. Um, the, our funding agencies... NIH and others aren't really set up to fund climate and health research. Um, this is still very much seen as a, a niche focus, which is ironic and, and really seriously problematic in my view, because as, uh, as I might not have said already, so I'll say it now, I consider climate change to be the biggest of all public health threats. Um, If we don't respond to climate change well and soon, um, we will have unleashed a public health catastrophe that will last many, many generations. So the fact that our health funding agencies are putting tiny amounts of money towards doing research on climate and health, the ways in which climate is harming our health, and more importantly, the ways in which we can protect our health um, I think that's a, a real serious um, imbalance in in the uh, uh, in our funding our health funding priorities in the United States and and almost certainly around the world. One one thing that might help our audience to understand about climate change and climate change research because it is it is a important field, but it's also very abstract. So you know, would it be possible that you maybe could share with our audience that you know? There's, once you conduct the study, you have the finding. So with the finding, how does a country such as the U.S. develop policy responses to climate change based on the finding? Because I think that's the mystery, I think, in public health. Like, people don't really see what public health is, right? Because it's really about the policies and programs that's in place to protect and improve population health at a very micro level. And so I think if people can see how research and how funding for research is so important, then maybe individual people can support research in climate change. So maybe you could elaborate, like, I guess, how is policy developed, especially in response to climate change research? Yeah, it's such a good question, Key. Um, and, I, and I will say right now we do it really badly um, as a country. Really? You know, the, that's a country, the United States is so far behind in terms of our response to climate change, um, both in terms of you know, preventing further climate change, as well as in terms of adapting to it so that we don't get needlessly hurt. Um, and both of those two, you know, we need, we desperately need policies on in both of those two areas. The first being, what can we do to limit climate change, which is fundamentally a, a global challenge, because fundamentally clim- our climate is changing 
you know, in response to those first things I mentioned, the burning of fossil fuels and the burning down of forests and, and the food we eat and how we grow it. And, and that happens worldwide. And so we, you know, the ability to, to limit climate change and, and truly prevent the worst, uh, you know, these public, this public health catastrophe that I mentioned earlier, um, that's going to require global cooperation. Everybody's, all nations have to get on board. But then some of it, as you sort of as implied in your question, some of it can only happen locally. Um, and so, for example, you know, one of the consequences of climate change on our health, as I said before, is increase in vector-borne diseases. And when you, um, you know, what what is it that public health people can do to, um, to minimize the spread of mosquito-borne and tick-borne diseases. Some of the, some in, in some counties, in some cities, public health people actually do control those programs. Um, uh, but uh, in other places, uh, particularly in rural places, it's, it's really different parts of government that would be responsible, for example, for trying to, to control the, um, the deer tick, uh, which is spread by these little tiny mice, um, and it's it's not the public health people. So I guess the most important part of my answer to your wonderful question is that those of us in public health who study um, the health impacts of climate change, the kinds of policies that are most important for us to, I'll, I'll say, to um, champion, they're not policies that we have the ability to put in place ourselves. So we have to champion the, the important policies with whichever level, with, with, in, with policymakers at whatever level of government where they're actually making those decisions. So, for example, um, as I sort of implied in my very first answer to your first question, the most important thing we can do to prevent health harms from climate change is we can swap out, we can stop using dirty fossil fuels which pollute our air and our water and create, you know, air and water pollution. Um, and we can swap them. We can swap in clean renewable energy like wind and solar and geothermal. And the, the faster we do that, the more we will protect, the more we will limit climate change and the more we will protect people's health. Um, and the, the importance of doing that is not just limiting climate change in the long run, but the, the importance of doing it is we can actually improve people's health right away in our community. So in my county, we have only one remaining fossil fuel burning plant. And uh, trust me, me, uh, I and lots of other uh, like-minded people, we're working hard to try to get that fossil fuel plant shut down and instead build up our community solar program as a way to, to electrify our community. And if we succeed in doing that, um, we're not only helping future generations, we're actually helping everybody in our county because we will be helping create cleaner air and cleaner water so our children will experience fewer asthma attacks and our, our parents will uh, suffer less from their, uh, their chronic illnesses, including, for example, chronic obstructive lung disease. So clean air and clean water is something that we benefit from locally. So that these are the kinds of things we need to do, how we translate what we've learned from the research into policies that, that benefit people's health. We have to do it worldwide in terms of decarbonizing the global economy. Um, and the faster we do it, the more we benefit. But we also have to do it in our own community 
um, in a variety of ways. And the sooner we do it, the sooner we benefit. I want to give my state, I live in the state of Maryland. I want to give Maryland a shout out here because I just learned something yesterday that is so important. Um, and what I learned is that in Maryland, over the past 12 years, we've reduced our emission of heat trapping pollution by 38%. And I work at George Mason University, which is in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And just this year, our, our legislature and our governor passed really important um, climate legislation. So Virginia will soon be like Maryland in dramatically reducing um, the heat trapping pollution that, that's produced in, in Virginia. And uh, both Virginia and Maryland, as you know, are adjacent to Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C., although it's tiny, can be really quite mighty because it's our nation's capital. And, and Washington, D.C. has recently adopted policies that it will make it a national leader in greenhouse gas uh, reductions. So these three, these three, two states and the District of Columbia that that touch my life most proximally are doing incredible. There, we are really becoming leaders na uh, nationwide in how to respond to climate change, and and I hope that becomes an inspiration for other states in our region and and frankly for states all over the nation because it it signals hey, we can make a lot of progress really fast. Um, and the same is true of cities. So there's a, a small city just outside Austin, Texas. It's called Georgetown. And um, the city of Georgetown uh, actually runs their own utility company. And the, the Republican mayor of Georgetown looked at the numbers and he realized he would actually save his... Um, constituents money if he shut down the coal-fired power plant and instead fueled their city, their utility company, their entire city with clean energy instead. And so in a matter of something like two years, and this happened about five years ago, they went from, you know, being a pretty typical Texas community, mostly fueled by fossil fuels, to being 100% fueled by clean, renewable sources. And Success stories like that are so hopeful to me, and and I hope that uh, I hope that it will help other communities, other decision makers, policymakers recognize, you know, the only thing standing in our way of of solving our problems is our own lack of willingness to try, because we really have all the tools at our disposal. So it's not a matter of needing new tools; it's just a matter of using the tools we've got. Knowing that these success stories are out there. You know, if there's a listener who is like in a community and perhaps in their state, there's mess, there's a less of a political will um, to address climate change. What would you advise them for individuals so that, you know, they can be empowered? You know, what could what could be some practical tips you can share with someone who's like listening, is inspired, but they realize I'm in a town that no one cares about this. Like, what can they do to you know, get to that level of policy change to help maybe move the needle, even just for a tiny degree of change. Yeah, well, um, one one part of my work is I conduct a uh, every six months, my partner at, at, the, at Yale, uh, Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, and my center, George Mason, the, the Center for Climate Change Communication, we conduct a, a public opinion poll every six months. It's nationally representative. And um, we actually downscale that data to be able to look at what people in every county in America think and do with regard to climate change. And, and I can tell you, there's not one county in America where, where people don't care about this issue. 
it's true that in some counties, more people care and in other counties, fewer people care. Um, but it's really important to realize that, um, that in every community in America, there are a lot of people who are worried about climate change. And so the que- your question, though, is right on target. So what can they do? What can, if they're worried about it, what can they do? And I'm, I'm actually going to suggest there's two really important things that they can do. Um, and, and both of these sort of are consistent with what, I've, what we've already discussed. The first thing, you know, uh, each of us is more than one person, you know, or there's, there's the ed that is the consumer, um, the ed that, that buys things and, and pays my utility bills and what have you. And, and that ed, um, what that ed has done, because I am really worried about climate change, what, what I do is I, I power my own home with 100% clean renewable energy. I, I couldn't, as it turns out, I live in a very shady place and, uh, and I couldn't put solar panels on my roof. I, I could, but it wouldn't work very well because there's too much shade. So the way I power my home uh, as a consumer with clean energy is I am a subscriber to a community solar project. Somebody, uh, a business person built a large uh, community scale solar p- uh, plant on top of one of our old municipal landfills that has been closed down. And I literally buy my electricity from him. He runs it through our utility company and it, it doesn't necessarily come into the sockets in my wall, but it is feeding, it is, it is replacing the coal fired power that, that Pepco, my utility provider was, was previously using to produce electricity. And for people who can't use, uh, who don't have access to a community solar, uh, program they can buy clean energy uh, elsewhere as a matter of fact there's an if you just google the three words buy clean energy it will probably first take you to a site called buycleanenergy.org and that site will actually allow you to enter your zip code and it will give you a whole list of options about how every person in america can start powering their home with 100 percent clean renewable energy and it's super important that we all do that because it sends a very loud, clear signal to the public utility commissions and, and to the utility companies that the product they've been selling us isn't the product we want anymore. We want a product that's good for our health, not a product that's, that's destabilizing our climate, causing air pollution, and is harming the health of our children and, and our, um, the adults in our community. So that's the first thing that anybody can do is they can power their own home with clean energy. They can also, if they can, if they can afford a new car or can afford to lease a new car and, uh, or can afford a car at all, um, more and more uh, electric vehicles are becoming price competitive. Um, they still cost a little bit more, but they're much cheaper to operate. And over the life of the car, you can actually save money. And in doing so, you're also completely weaning yourself off gasoline. So those are two ways that every one of us as a consumer can at least attempt to to rise to this challenge. But there's another even more fundamental and I would suggest more important thing that every one of us can do. Every one of us can vote for elected officials who will take climate change seriously. Every one of us, when we are asked to vote for candidate X and candidate Y, we can tell candidate X and candidate Y, yeah, sure, you can earn my vote, but you have to earn it. And the way you earn it is by proving to me that you're going to put in place the policies that will protect our climate and our health from climate change. 
And if you can prove to me that you can do that, that you will do that, you will have earned my vote. So I call that being a climate hawk. So, and it costs nothing to be a climate hawk. You challenge candidates, challenge elected officials, um, that if they want your support, and they of course do want your support, the way they can earn it is by becoming a climate hawk themselves. And you had mentioned that you and your colleague at Yale working on a project that polls people every six months. Could you maybe share with our audience, like how would they learn more about that? Or is there a website or is this like a paper, a mail survey? No, yeah, we you can, everybody uh, can learn of uh, the results of our polls. Um, they can come to my website at the, uh, at George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communication. The, the web domain is climatechangecommunication.org, or they can go to the Yale website. Um, I don't actually know the web domain off the top of my head, but it's the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Um, and they can actually look at the county level and state level climate opinion maps that my colleagues at, at Yale um, and other universities have created. There are these wonderful maps that show you on about two, do- two or three dozen different indicators of public understanding of global warming. Um, it shows you what the people in your community, your metro area, your state um, are thinking and feeling and doing um, with regard to climate change. And it's really illuminating um, because the one thing that I find when I show people this resource is how many of them say, I had no idea how many people in my community are worried about global warming, or I had no idea how many people in my community are support policies that would allow, that would essentially make it easier for us to buy electric vehicles or to put solar panels on our roofs. And so, you know, America as a nation, sort of from even, even from where you and I sit in the Wisconsin and and Maryland, it looks like we're a nation totally divided on climate change. But in reality, we're not. The the majority of Americans are are really want to see climate solutions put into place. Um, And more and more, that is being driven by an understanding that climate change is harming our health. Five years ago, our polls showed that almost no Americans were connecting climate change and human health. They saw it as a polar bear problem, as I said earlier. But more and more people are coming to recognize, oh my God, it's it's not just polar bears, but it, it's people too. It's it's me, it's my children, it's my my family. And that's a really important motivator because when, when we recognize our own skin in the game, we become pretty serious about addressing, finding solutions to the problem. You know, as we're coming to a close, perhaps you can share with us like some of the current projects you're working on. And how that is addressing climate change on human health. I am relentlessly focused at the moment on the Paris Climate Agreement and making sure that we, (laughs) humanity, that we actually um, achieve the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement, which is to limit global warming to no more than two degrees Celsius, uh, um, or ideally no more than 1.5 degrees Because as a public health professional, I know that if we fail to achieve that goal, we will have unleashed a a slowly unfolding public health catastrophe that will destabilize human civilization and cause enormous suffering, enormous death and disease for, for many generations. 
So from where I sit as a public health professional, the most important public health goal in the world today is achieving the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement. So what I'm doing about that is I'm, I'm actually currently helping to organize a campaign um, where we're trying to recruit health professionals all over the world to become strong champions for the Paris Climate Agreement, um, to champion with their nation's leaders that they too must um, must support the agreement, as they all have pledged to do, with the exception of President Trump, who has done just the opposite. He has pulled America out of the Paris Climate Agreement, making us the sole outlier in, in the world today. Um, but it's incredibly important that our next president put us back in the Paris Climate Agreement and that the leaders of every nation of the world not only meet the obligations they have already voluntarily made, but they need to increase their obligations because worldwide, the, the pledges made, the pledges to uh, and reduce our emission of heat-trapping pollution made by all the countries of the world is only half enough of what is necessary to limit global warming to two degrees centigrade. So my project at the moment is trying to um, rally the world's health professionals to strengthen and defend the Paris Climate Agreement because it's the most important public health program in the world today. So thank you so much for spending your time with us here today. And I was wondering, you know, as we're coming to a close, like what is one golden nugget of advice for our listeners that they can do in their everyday life to address climate change? I know that you gave us so many tips and and I think our listeners are going to listen to our podcast again and again. But just just so that, you know, as they're listening to the end of this episode, they can do one thing. Like, what is one thing they can do like right now um, to address climate change? One thing that I would ask and urge all of your listeners to do right now is get online and uh, go to the Global Climate and Health Alliance website. Global Climate and Health Alliance um, this is an organization that was founded by lots of other climate and health organizations, and its mission is to do the kinds of things that we've been talking about, to try to make sure that the nation, the, the leaders of the world do what is necessary to protect the public's health and well-being from a changing global climate. And so if you go to Global Climate Health Alliance's website, sign up to receive information from them online. And they will ask you soon, they will ask you if you would be willing to become part of this global campaign that I've been talking about. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that resource. And listeners, I will have the link to that organization so you can learn more and be a part of this new change for climate change. So Dr. Maybach, thank you again so much for your time. And if our listeners are super pumped and they want to learn more about climate change, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Um, they can connect with me on Twitter uh, if they're Twitter users. So my, my handle is um, at MaybachEd. Well, thank you so very much. My pleasure, Keith. Thanks for uh, having me on your, on your podcast. If you got questions about any of the episodes, feel free to reach out to me directly. And while you're there at it, please subscribe to the podcast and share the episode that you felt connected with so we could be a part of this collective invisible force called public health. Thanks.